Hello, friends, and thanks for joining us today for the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. This week, we had the privilege of welcoming Reverend Scott Gillen. And Scott continued our study out of the book of Acts and challenges us to remember God's vision for the church. God wants a church that is unified, diverse, and recognizes the beauty of the all-expansive kingdom. Remember, you can watch our live stream that happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., or you can always find us at hillcrestdekalb.com. Grace and peace, friends. Hey, it's good to be back with you today. Um, it's really a privilege to be at Hillcrest Covenant in DeKalb. Um, uh, I've always appreciated this church so much. First of all, way back, I know Megan mentioned last week, but you so warmly welcomed our son and uh, girlfriend then, daughter-in-law now, uh, into your church back in the mid-2000s. And, um, I just, and secondly, I just think your pastor, uh, Jen, is wonderful. Um, uh, I ran into her about oh, a month, month and a half ago. I walked into a, a coffee place in Naperville and, to meet a friend, and she was, she was sitting there. She was meeting a friend, too, and we chatted about this day coming up and that Megan and I would be preaching, and she just said what she always says when I talk to her, I just love my church. <laughs> she just loves you guys. And i got to be honest, after 40 years of pastoring, I could not always with integrity say that. <laughs> I loved every one of the churches I served, but uh, not quite with that depth and passion that I hear your pastor speak of you all. So um, I pray for Jen. I pray especially, I, when I retired, one of the things God just called me to do was to keep praying for pastors. And I particularly have female pastors on my heart and mind because they face all of the same struggles and tensions and challenges uh, that any pastor does. And then the additional one that there's a lot of people that want to invalidate the fact that they can be a pastor when in fact God has so clearly called them. It helps that my wife is ordained, my daughter's ordained, my daughter-in-law is ordained. As I say, I show up just to remind people that the Evangelical Covenant still ordains men. But um, <laughs> seriously, love Jen. And I'm so grateful for her on this time of sabbatical too. And I'm praying for her as I, and I know you are. As a pastor of 40 years, and actually for 30 of those, I was on my own, and, um, or had a small staff, but I was the lead pastor, so I preached almost every week for, uh, for 30 years, but it's been three, three years since I retired from full-time pastoral ministry, so I might be a little bit rusty, okay, so I'm going to, um, but I've, I've had fun preparing for today, and then afterwards, you let me know, yeah, you were a little rusty, can you send your wife back next week, and that'll be fine with me, so um, anyway. I'm going to mention a word and see how this lands. And we've been prepped a little bit with Bill. I didn't know Bill was going to show that video, by the way, on Juneteenth. But the word diversity. Diversity. How does that, how does that land with us today? My guess is that it's going to, like in a lot of churches, land in a lot of different places. Some of you have been through hours of diversity training in your workplace, and for some it's been helpful, and some it's been annoying, and some of you are perhaps even weary of hearing about diversity in this uh, heightened, uh, this, this place we are now of deep political division and heightened racial tensions. Some would feel maybe in the church, can't we just kind of uh, forget about that? Can we just head in a different direction as a church? Uh, doesn't talking about this stuff cause more division and controversy? And for some to speak of diversity perhaps feels too political. Or sometimes, rightly, people in churches say, why can't we talk about unity? Why can't we just talk about the things that unify us rather than the things that uh, make us different? 
But I believe it's precisely because it causes those tensions and it, and it tugs at our hearts in different directions uh, that we need to cling to the gospel in the midst of this and find that the answer to dealing with this is really in a God who created all people, uh, created all people of equal dignity and worth, a God who created us in his image, every single human being in the image of God. And so the diversity of creation then reflects more fully who God is. And I think when we do that, we see that there is actually a unity um, in the midst of that diversity. The answer, I believe, is found in this God who created his image. The answer is found in a God who sent his son to, to bring reconciliation, a God who came to bring and break down the walls that divide people. The answer is found in a God who calls us to love our neighbor, all of our neighbors, as we love him. And that's why we need to move in this direction as people of the word and people of God. I believe God is calling us to that. He's calling us to a a unity in Christ amidst a diversity that reflects his image. I like to call it God's dream for the world. That's the theme I chose for this morning, God's dream for the world. When we talk about God's dream for the world or his call upon our life, a lot of us want to go to, uh, and rightly so, to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. This is where Jesus' final words to the disciples, he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. This great call upon our life to make disciples of all nations. Do you know what the Greek word for nations is? Ethnos, E-T-H-N-O-S. What does that sound like, ethnos? (laughs) Different people groups, the word from which we also get ethnic and ethnicity. Go make disciples of all ethnos. And then as we look ahead to Revelation, we see the vision uh, that John was given of what it will be like in heaven. And it's this beautiful multicultural kingdom unified in and around Jesus. We see it in Matthew, uh, Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. We glimpse this future perfect kingdom, this dream of God. It says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. I see this vision of heaven as God's dream for the world, for all of the wonderful people, beautiful people he created, to be together, unified in his Son, Jesus Christ. So I want to spend a little bit of time looking at God's dream for the world, and we're going to go back to Acts. You were in Pentecost a couple weeks ago. Megan spoke from Acts 16 last week, and she'll continue with 16 next week, but I want to roll back to some earlier texts here. And first, to look at how in, we see in Acts the walls between people begin to break down, first of all. Secondly, we see the church, the diverse church, begin to expand, but we also recognize the challenges the church faced then and the challenges that we as followers of Christ face right now. So the wall's coming down. I didn't provide an outline. When I preached all the time, there was an outline in the oven, in, 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 the, in the bulletin. There was an outline on the screen. I didn't do that for today. That's part of the rusty part, but stick with me. I'll, I'll keep you on board here. So the wall's coming down. Two weeks ago, you celebrated Pentecost Sunday, one of my favorite uh, things. One of the things I miss, we go to a, a, a big mega church in, in Naperville now, and we're, it's a wonderful church, but they don't follow this church year stuff. Nobody even mentioned Pentecost a couple weeks ago. Megan and I remembered that it was Pentecost, but... Um, 
And of course, you see on that day this, um, this incredible moment when the Holy Spirit came and this huge multicultural gathering in Jerusalem. And uh, when we read that text, in fact, in some churches where they, they ask people to be the scripture readers, we did that at, that at Naperville, uh, people would say, oh, don't give me that. Don't give me one of those things that's got all those weird names in it, right? Anybody ever been asked to read scripture and say, oh, yeah, so this, this is what, people love this one. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Camphylia, Egypt in the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Those are all the people that were in Jerusalem. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. The miracle of Pentecost. That miraculous moment when the, the, the language barriers were down and, 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 and with them the cultural barriers were down and they heard one unified voice of people giving testimony to the power of the Spirit. This is people from all over the, the known world of that time pretty much. And in them, at that moment, that miraculous moment, there was unity and understanding. And this was a glimpse, this was a preview really of this dream of God. The church at that point was still all Jewish, really. It was just a, had grown out of Judaism. It was really still pretty much confined to uh, the people in and around Jerusalem. But this miracle did happen. The Holy Spirit came and began the work, but it did not necessarily break down all the walls that divided that diverse group of people, but it gave us a vision of it. It looked toward the dream, and it began the early church on a journey towards that dream. But when we get to Acts 10, we begin to see the walls starting to come down. This is the story, and I encourage you, if you're not familiar with this story, it's, I'd love to read the entire chapter of Acts 10. You have to read the whole thing to get the whole story. So uh, if, you, if you want to look at it later, Acts 10, Acts is the one come right after the four Gospels. Uh, but this is the story of Peter and Cornelius. We meet Peter in Acts 10. He's one of the 12 disciples whose life and ministry was radically changed on that Pentecost day, perhaps the most, most change we see in the pages of scripture more than any disciple at that point but here in acts 10 he has a vision actually the scripture says it was a trance of a, of a sheet filled with filled with all of these animals being lowered to the earth and um and, and he's being told to kill and eat these now you gotta understand that um uh, peter had been changed by jesus but he still was jewish he still had all the jewish cultural and he was still abiding by the laws and regulations of of his faith and to him, there were still unclean foods and unclean people. And here he sees this crazy vision. In verse 9, it says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And then it says it happened three times. <laughs> it's like, Peter, you know, get it, get it, three times. And then Peter says, surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Peter ponders what this means, and while deep in thought, some men show up at his door. They've been sent from Cornelius, a Roman soldier. You learned that earlier in 10. Uh, Cornelius is a Roman soldier, sort of a higher up, and, and the men say, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. 
A holy angel told him to ask you, Peter, to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. He leads a bunch of people, but he's described as a God-fearing man. And there, there were those among the Gentiles who weren't Jewish, uh, didn't know the God of Israel, but somehow in their heart they knew that there was a God there to be worshipped. And he was, he, he was seeking the answers. Well, they come to get Peter, so of course Peter's going to go, right? He's going to go, and uh, this is a great opportunity. But there are reasons for Peter not to go. Strong reasons. Cornelius was a non-Jew, a Gentile. And not just because there was this saying, but there was really a, in, in his day and age, the regulation says you do not have contact with unclean people, and Gentiles are unclean people. So there was that resistance. But second, not only was he a Gentile, but he was a Roman soldier. And the Romans were the oppressors of the Jewish people at this time. But Peter goes anyway, and after hearing Cornelius' story of seeking and listening and reflecting on his own story, that vision that he'd heard realizes this apparently was not a coincidence that they knocked on my door after the vision of the sheet. In verse 34, Peter says this. He began to speak and says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter has his eyes and his mind open to a God who wants to include all kinds of people, all kinds of ethnos in his church. From here on, the wall between Jew and Gentile begins to fall, and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus and his inbreaking kingdom begins to spread to all ethnos, all people, all kinds of people as we move further into the chapters of Acts. So it's in the story of Cornelius and Peter, Acts 10, that we begin to see the walls fall. I realize now how true it is that God does not show favoritism, says Peter, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. The walls begin to fall, and then we see next in Acts that the church begins to expand. In Acts 13, we read this. Actually, the very final verse of chapter 12 says this, and then into 13. Just a few simple verses. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And they're going to Antioch, which is a city in modern-day Syria, north of Jerusalem. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and went off. Now this, when you're reading through Acts, this just sounds like kind of one of those um, transition verses, you know, like here's a wonderful story and then here's kind of what happened to get us to the next story. And this is kind of the, the next story to get us to the missionary journeys of, of, of Paul. And, and you know that if you believe the Bible is inspired all the way from Genesis to maps, you know that in maps we see the three, four journeys of Paul, right? And this is right before the first journey of Paul. So this is kind of the setup. But sometimes we have to look at these transition verses in Scripture and say, what is this telling us? What is this actual description of the church in Antioch telling us? And when we read it a little more closely, we realize that it's giving a snapshot of a very diverse church. 
Yes, ethnically, but also culturally, socioeconomically, as well as ethnically. This church is evidence that the early church broke cultural boundaries and was removing the walls between people. Here in Antioch, this is where the mission work started. This is where Paul and Barnabas get set off on their mission to the Gentiles. This is the sending of the disciples to go make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, begins here. So to talk about diversity in the church now is is not a new thing. It's a Bible thing because we see it right here. In these few short verses, Luke takes special care to point out, because Luke's a detail guy. He was a doctor. He's a detail guy. He takes special care to point out the leadership team of the Antioch church and how it was racially mixed. First of all, he mentions Paul, who was a, what we call a Hellenistic Jew. Paul was, was Jewish, but he'd grown up in a, in a, in a, in a Greek-influenced area of what is now Turkey. And so he was Jewish uh, by birth. He was a descendant of a tribe of Israel, but he was a, a, a Greek-influenced Jew. There was also Barnabas who was, Jewish, Barnabas, who was Jewish as well, but he came from the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. And so he was a little bit different variety of, of Jew as well. And then we have Menean, who it says was from Herod's household, indicating, first of all, that he worked for the Roman oppressors, which was kind of weird, but also indicated that he probably had a very privileged upbringing. He was probably somebody who had, had, had kind of traveled in the higher, higher circles, and yet now he is serving Christ in a church with these other people. The fourth one mentioned is Simon, who had the na- nickname Niger, which literally means black. Simon was black. Simon was probably from the region of sub-Saharan Africa, where the gospel went quickly after the resurrection of Christ. We know that one of the oldest churches in the world is the African church in Ethiopia, and it's possible that that's where Simeon was from. And then finally, we have Lucius from Cyrene, and Cyrene is modern-day Libya. Another African, a North African, is in this mix Of the five leaders mentioned, then, one is from the Middle East, one is from Asia, one is from the Mediterranean, and two are from Africa. And all of this in a predominantly Jewish context. I love this. One commentator I read said this. The leadership in Antioch was not an accidental conglomerate of races and cultures, but an intentional sign to the surrounding world. It is no surprise then that in Antioch, this fledgling group was first given the name Christian. It says that a couple chapters earlier. They were first called Christians in Antioch. It's no accident they were given the name Christian since there was no other uniting factor other than what they had in Christ. Isn't that great? You would look at this group and people go, what connects all these people? These people are from all over the place. These people, their people groups have all kinds of animosity and walls between them. What possibly could connect them? Christ. You know, now we look at that word Christian. Well, I'm not a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I mean, it's not a religion. It's a relationship. I'm a, you know. But Christian then was like, Woo! man, it was this powerful designation. It could be the only thing that could take down the walls and unite people. And it was this congregation, not the congregation in Jerusalem, but this congregation that was the first to send out missionary journeys into the entire region, eventually even to Europe, and to lead that first person in Europe to Christ, Lydia, who you heard about last week uh, from Megan. 
We hear it when Paul later writes letters to the churches that got planted as a result of those journeys. He drives home his point to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians. All those letters are names of places, the church in Colossae, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae of how Jesus breaks down the sin-built walls of the divided people. He summarizes it in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. You are Christians in Christ. The early church then, reflecting the kingdom, expanding the kingdom, moving in the direction of God's dream for the world. God's dream for the world. But there are challenges, challenges then and challenges now. There's a meanwhile even to this story. Meanwhile in this story, as this all-nations-focused church grew from Antioch back in Jerusalem, the church began to move back in the other direction. It was the original church, the original Jewish church, the old downtown first church, you might call it. First Covenant, First Baptist, First Methodist kind of became the old established church that some left to go to the cool new church down the street that had a great logo, um, traditions, new, or had new music, whatever. I'm kidding a little bit, but, you know, the old church, there's, there's value there, but they began to slip back a little bit because the church in Jerusalem began to allow some of those walls that had divided, uh, that had been torn down in Peter's vision, even through Peter himself back at Jerusalem, let some of those walls creep back up. And we see it in evidence of imposing more Jewish guidelines. And we see the church struggling then in the next couple chapters of Acts in 14 and 15 around how Christian and how Jewish and what do, do people have to become Jews in order to come to Christ. And so the old church was, was a little bit stuck there while the church at Antioch was unleashing this multi-ethnic vision, pursuing the dream of God. And unfortunately, down through history, that has too often been the story. Jesus calls people together. Jesus breaks down walls, and yet gradually the walls get built back up. Unity amidst diversity is hard to do. It's hard. There's reasons that differences divide us. We don't understand the things that divide us. We get afraid of the differences that divide us. We're afraid that one group might be more powerful than we are, and so our resistance builds up all, and this is in the church, not to mention the culture, right? It's happened over and over again. Unity amidst diversity is hard. I hate to say this, but it's true. It's easier to be with our own kind. It's easier and comfortable. And we could do that without any guilt if it weren't for this dream of God, right? <laughs> Speaking of churches getting stuck, we often are fault. And I, I love the all the, the church signs are great, Bill. I mean, just you know, they're, they're clever, they're cute, they're funny. And for those of us who are churchy insiders, but yeah, like, hey, if we make you really feel guilty about not coming to church, would you come here? You know, it's kind of like you know, I came to Jesus because I found out there's all these things I couldn't do anymore that were fun. <laughs> You know, I mean, we, we, we've done that. As if our Christian life is defined by what we do and what we don't do. In fact, I think Bill, I was at um, Wheaton um, probably a decade before Bill, but um, we used to kid there that, um, 
And I did not grow up in it. I grew up in a church family, came to Christ through a young life, but I was not a, a kind of a conservative. I didn't grow up in the conservative evangelical world. And so I got to Wheaton, and it was like, oh, uh, couldn't drink. My parents, good church-going people, had a cocktail before dinner. I go, well, I can't have one with you now, even though I'm 21. because you know. Whatever. So um, there was the rules, and I, I obeyed them. Uh, but one of, one of the things that I thought so amusing was that on Sundays, which some of you who might have grown in a more conservative background know that Sunday, day of rest, you don't do anything. Kids don't ride their bikes. You don't, you know, all this thing. They took down the tennis nets at Wheaton on Sundays back in the 70s. I thought, well, okay, you can't play tennis, but you can spend all day in your room cramming for the exam the next day. You can't play tennis, but you can make out with your girlfriend in the dorm room. You know, anyway, so, um, yeah. not that I was ever cynical about the rules at Wheaton, but... Um, Great. So, you know, with the funny things we do, right? The funny things we do. And we still look at each other. We kind of go, oh, hey, they're coming to our church. Oh, I, well, they do this, this, and this. You know, do, we define Christians based on the do's and don'ts. But I'm going to give you some anyway, okay? <laughs> I'm going to name, actually, what, some of the challenges we face, and I'm going to phrase them around a couple don'ts and a couple do's as I seek to wrap this up. But as I say wrap up, don't, it's going to be a little while, so don't go, oh, he's almost done. Okay. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing pastors do, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the first don't is, as I talk about diversity, or as you saw that video uh, on Juneteenth, don't, try not to jump to extreme conclusions when you hear these hot-button words. Try not to jump. Don't, don't, don't jump to it. The, the current, current cultural climate, the current political climate has made all of us, left or right, wherever we identify, a little touchy. We've become a little reactive, a little. We've become a lot reactive rather than reflective and thinking about this and understanding. And some of us who are sick and tired of it become a little bit numb to the issues. I just don't even want to hear. I don't even want to listen to the news. I don't want to hear what happened. And please don't bother me with it at church, my safe place. It's understandable. But let's try not to jump to the extreme conclusions. In fact, this don't actually is a do. And the do is, do stay close to Jesus in, as we navigate our, our way through understanding diversity and issues of race. Do stay close to Jesus. Do stay close to the word, which is why I wanted to get us into the word today and see what happened in the early church and what happened in Peter. Let's look there. Let's look to the Word of God and the family of God for our discipleship, not our news sources. <laughs> so don't jump to extreme conclusions, but stay, keep an open mind. My second don't would be don't settle for simple answers and sound bites. <laughs> you say, well, I heard somebody say da 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 da. That's it, you know. I heard you know, somebody say that, or I was reading the other day. And I say even don't settle for the the simple answers that sound really spiritual, and they are spiritual, like, well, I just believe Jesus makes us all one, and so that's the way it is. Or I just think we should forget about all the differences, and, 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 and or, or um, I believe everybody was made in the image of God, and when I look, at, look at, uh, at my friends who are people of color, I don't see color. That's one of the big ones of, I don't see color, which sounds good, doesn't it? It's, it says, and it's, it's good as good. It says, I'm, I'm not... I'm not making an assumption about somebody because they're colored because I don't recognize it. I'm not valuing somebody as more important or less important because of their color. It sounds good. But what it says to our friends of color is, 
your differences don't matter to me. And in a sense, for those of us who are white, it says, from my, the standard that I set, <laughs> you know, um, I, I assume you're like me. And you're not. We need to recognize the difference. We need to recognize that multicultural, colorful reality that God created in his image. So let's be careful of the quick answers and sound bites. Even the spiritual ones that have elements of truth in them. Those are my two don'ts. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't settle for simple answers. And I didn't see anybody walk out yet, so I think we're okay. This is good. Um, number three, though, is do. It's a do. It's a do listen. Do listen. Listen to different perspectives. We need to realize, and this has been part of my own journey, especially in the last 10 years, of, of trying to look at things through different lenses through which we see the diverse people, and how, or I should say how the how diverse people see Jesus and read Scripture. We come with a different background through which we read and interpret Scripture. After I retired three years ago, I was at Covenant offices for a year and a half, and I had the privilege of being the interim director for Covenant Kids Congo, which is the partnership that the Covenant has with World Vision, serving the northwest corner of Congo. Loved, loved that work. I, was, I just loved uh, doing that. I did love that job all the time. Anyway, don't tell my churches I said that. But anyway, um, but uh, when the world shut down in March, I still was there another six months, and we were online almost every day with our, I was on the Serve Globally team, which is a very diverse team. And um, when the George Floyd incident happened, uh, I can remember us processing it as a team. And there's two African-American women on the, on, on the team. And um, I can remember them saying, they used the words, you don't know how this feels inside my black female body. <laughs> it was just their reference point. But that, to me, that was a, okay, they have a lens I can never have as a white, old white male. But I need to hear this sister who I know and love as a friend. One of the, a dear friend, her husband is pastor of the church I served before. So it's, we, we need to listen and listen through different filters. In fact, the work I'm doing now, even though I'm not serving a church, is um, I'm working with an organization called Living Undivided, which uh, comes out of a church in Cincinnati. And at the core of Living Undivided is a six-week cohort, a six-week uh, multiracial uh, cohort where we spend time, uh, we see some videos. It's, faith, it's a Christian base, it's scripture based. We see some videos from scripture, we see some videos uh, about history, such, such as what we are seeing in the video about Galveston and Juneteenth. But we also spend time sharing story and listening. The groups need to be at least 30% people of color, and so uh, it's an opportunity to share those experiences. And so the church I'm in, we've done about five cohorts, and now I'm leading a team that's trying to expand it into uh, the Chicago area. If you're familiar with the author and speaker, uh, Brenda Salter McNeil, uh, she's an African-American leader. She's ordained in the covenant as well. She's one of our, our family. Um, we're having her at an event in Naperville uh, later in July to, uh, to talk about this. But it's a, what I want to get, I'm not, I'm not advertising here, I just want to say what, the, the, the core of this is a listening, <laughs> a listening, a sharing story and listening things from different perspectives. People's lived experience gives them a different way to see things. For example, off of us, often those of us who, have, who, who are living in this world of, uh, of Christianity and particularly evangelical Christianity, and by evangelical we don't mean political, we mean we, this focus on a, a life-changing relationship with Jesus. To me, the core of it is the evangel, the gospel, which says there's forgiveness in life in a relationship with Jesus. 
And so often we in the white church have tended to see our faith and tended to see our growth, tended to see even issues of righteousness in a personal way, a personal holiness way. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And so when we hear the challenge of Scripture, we, we think of... of so, so, so example, the Great Commission, go into the world to make disciples of all nations. We hear, go lead them to a life-changing personal relationship with Jesus. Do you know that our black sisters and brothers in Christian churches, Bible churches, the first thing they hear are the liberation stories. Bill talked, all the parts that Bill talked about that got cut out of that slave Bible are the first thing that they see through their filters. It's where their lived experience uh, uh, leads them. And so black churches are much more on the ground in their neighborhoods dealing with issues of justice, not because they're liberal social justice churches, because that's where they live. That's where their lived experience leads them. So we need to listen to those stories. This idea of different perspectives. Remember that movie Crash that's set in L.A. years ago? Different perspectives. I have a much more serious, uh, deep-hearted experience of watching MASH reruns. Um, if you watched MASH, <laughs> seriously, there was a MASH episode where it was a, um, there was a news person coming and interviewing people about something that had happened in the, the MASH unit there. And it was four, the same, they all saw the same thing in four completely dis- different perspectives. Not necessarily contradictory, but different. And even when we come to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not identical. They don't contradict, but they saw things in different ways and they actually had slightly different purposes in writing. It wasn't just must write biography of Jesus. It was here's something I'm trying to say from what I see from my perspective and the needs of people. And so that was a long point. Number three was do, but do listen. I also think here of James, the letter, uh, James's letter, where he says, let us be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to anger. And that addresses my first don't, of don't react quickly. Be quick to listen, and slow to speak, and slow to anger. I'm going to clarify really quickly here before I, um, before I kind of finish. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not saying that all churches need to be diverse. I think sometimes diversity is forced. You know, well, if we can just get a, you know, a couple of people of color in here, then our church will look pretty good. I'm not... That's an issue for another day. I don't think we all need to be in churches that are multicultural. I mean, it's a great experience. Our, the church I'm in is becoming more and more so. But, uh, and my church in Naperville was becoming more so also. When I retired, they hired a black pastor, my colleague and friend, Leslie Sanders. But I do believe that all followers of Christ do need to understand and embrace a broader diversity. So whether our church reflects it or not, I mean, it would be great. But I think it's more important what goes on in here and what we understand, what we learn, as we accept and embrace a broader diversity and understanding, and we learn to see things from different perspectives. My final one is do. The last do is do self-examine. <laughs> Psalm 139 says, you know, to, says, cries out to God, search my heart and know me, know my anxious thoughts. Well, you know, if there's any wicked way in me, we need to, it's, part, it's a spiritual practice. Well, as followers of Christ, we should be doing that every day. Our, our quiet time isn't just reading scripture and a, and a thought. It needs to be a self-examination. If we really want to follow Christ and have him change our life, a self-examination. A good friend of mine, a covenant pastor, David Swanson, uh, is a pastor in Chicago. And uh, David is doing lots of um, work around diversity and racial reconciliation. He's very greatly respected among the black pastors of the south side of Chicago. 
Uh, but he's one of our guys. He's our buddy. David is a friend. And um, I saw David this week. I was at a two-day conference um, uh, in Chicago at a, at a black church. And it was, again, it was great for me just to go to sit in that milieu and just kind of hear how that my friends there were hearing. But David, there was two white speakers, David and then Russell Moore, some of you may know him, a former Southern Baptist who works for Christianity Day now, but they both spoke. But anyway, um, David was speaking about what divides us, and, as, and he pointed us to a passage that's familiar to many of us. Almost every, every Christian would, hear, would have heard part of Corinthians chapter 11, because the words from Corinthians 11 we use almost in Covenant Church, we do it once a month, um, some churches do it every week, communion, or Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, whatever your background is. And often we use words from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about the body and the blood of Christ. And there's a part of that passage where um, Paul says to the Corinthian church, um, let, let, let a person examine yourself before you come to the table. And it's kind of confused Christians for years. People are like, I can't take communion today because I was angry with my children this morning, so I'm a sinner. You know, we've, we've interpreted all kinds of different ways that. I just want to quote briefly from what David said as he shared this. He says, Paul admission, ad, admonishes the Corinthian church because there are, he says, there are divisions among you. Ooh, there's that word. He said, there's divisions among you at the Corinthian church, one of the churches that got planted in Corinth, which is in modern day Greece. You see, these divisions fell along uh, not so much ethnic lines as much as socioeconomic. There was rich people and poor people in the church in Corinth. And what was happening in Corinth is the poor people were coming to Holy Communion liturgy hungry, hoping not just, there was, it was more of a meal. It wasn't like, if I just had that little wafer of dried bread, my hunger, it's, they, you know, it was real food that was at the table. And they would often get to the table, and it was gone because the rich people had eaten it all, drunk all the wine, and were actually getting drunk. This is happening in the Corinthian church. It's in the Bible. <laughs> so Paul says, these divisions fell along socioeconomic patterns of Greco-Roman life, and the poor came to Holy Communion hungry, while the wealthy came tipsy, says Dave. In other words, they brought the societal status quo to the church with them, that the wealthy were privileged, and the poor just had to get over it is really what they were bringing to the Corinthian church. As a result of their conformity to that culture, Paul says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You think you're having the Lord's Supper, but it's not, he says. And their tacit acceptance of the status quo so thoroughly corrupted their worship that the elements could no longer be said to be the Eucharist. Paul goes on to say, given the Corinthians' tendency to slip into the sinful patterns of society that each member of the church ought to examine themselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. The examining themselves was not just about personal sin that they might be bringing before God, but how are they complicit with the divisiveness that was happening in their church? Paul's exhortation is to consider how we have succumbed to the ungodly norms of our society which have fooled us into accepting the unacceptable. I'm quoting David here because he's so much more eloquent than I, but Paul's exhortation is to consider how we have succumbed to the ungodly norms of our society which have fooled us into accepting the unacceptable. What things are in me? What kind of attitudes are in me? What kind of fears are in me? What kind of defenses are in me? What kind of blind spots are in me that might be keeping me from seeing the beauty of God's diversity and looking toward, working toward God's dream for the world. 
as we listen, learn, and grasp this, what impact can we have then as the people of God? What if we really got this? What if we realize that in the gospel and in this message that we in the church and followers of Christ, we have to answer to the things that divide us, particularly around areas of diversity and race? When we truly see the answers in the gospel, when we truly see it in a God who reconciles and unites and breaks down the wall, we actually are invited to partner with God in pursuing his dream for the world. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. And so we look to that dream of God in Revelation. And we say, I want to participate in seeing it happen bit by bit even now. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the beauty of your creation. Thank you for the amazing ways in which your image has played out among the vastness of creation that you've brought into being. Lord, I confess for the ways that I pull back and carry it in and could sit safely in my own little world and not have to think about these things. And yet, Lord, I thank you that your word calls me and your spirit troubles me and calls me back to think about these things and embrace these things, Lord. Lord, the world we live in is a mess. We confess for the ways that we've accepted it or perhaps even in some ways we may feel we've contributed to it. But Lord, we pray that we call us back to your heart, back to your word, back to our unity in Jesus. That as people look at us and say, that's That's kind of a goofy-looking group. What draws them together? We say it's Jesus that draws us together as we pursue your kingdom on earth, even as it is in heaven, and look to your dream for the world. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of opening your word, and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.